0: This is the
1: English Heritage Podcast.
0: Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe, and this time we're back in Britannia or Roman Britain, exploring a key stretch of Hadrian's Wall. This 73 mile long structure rose up along the whole of northern England from the Solway Firth east of Carlisle right across to Wall's End on the River Tyne. The wall itself was up to 4.5 metres tall, or 15 feet in places. It was defended by a series of mile castles and turrets, along with 16 larger forts. Today we're talking about one of those, Chesters, and my two guests
1: are I'm Frances Macintosh, and I'm a Collections Curator for English Heritage. I cover Hadrian's Wall in the North East, so I look after all the small objects and things that you see in museums that tell us about what was happening in the buildings you visit out on site.
2: Hello, my name's Andrew Roberts and I'm a properties historian. My job is to help to research and present English Heritage's collection of Roman sites to help Francis and others to put the museums together
0: and to interpret the archaeology on site. Fantastic. Well, it's great that we've got you both on to talk about Chester's Roman fort. Let's start with Andrew first. Where on Hadrian's Wall is Chester's and what was its role? Chester's is the sixth fort along from the
2: eastern end of Hadrian's Wall. It's about 40 kilometres away from the start of Hadrian's Wall in Wall's End in Newcastle. And forts such as Chester's were positioned at important points along the wall in order to house garrisons of either around 500 or around 1,000 soldiers. And these garrisons had a role in patrolling and defending the wall for almost 300 years.
0: Can you describe the area's topography? Because I understand there's a river nearby which might be a strategic thing. Yes, yeah, so the fort
2: itself is about five and three-quarter acres. It's one of the largest forts along the wall. And it sits in a river valley on the western edge of a band of comparatively gentle rolling, quite agriculturally fertile land that stretches 50 or so kilometres from the eastern coast of Britain. Immediately to the west of the fort, the ground starts to rise and the wall starts to climb steadily to the more rugged terrain of the central sector, where, for example, the famous fort of, of Housesteads sits immediately to the east of the fort within a couple of 100 meters is the river north tyne as you indicate and this is a branch of the famous tyne river that runs through newcastle and eventually empties into the north sea and the river and its valley is the strategic priority for the walls builders in this sector it's an important routeway between the north and south and probably an area of quite sizable settlements or at least one that could have sustained a large population and this needs to be monitored and that's really why the fort is here the garrison would have been busy sort of patrolling the landscape and been able to defend it if necessary
0: and it's quite a large site as you've just indicated as well let's talk about what we can see at chester's today what is left of the fort and the various buildings francis have you got something to tell us on that
1: I have, yeah, so today as a visitor you walk in to the north gate and from there you go and explore the rest of the site and we think a lot of the site is still under the ground but what's visible are all the gates, so the north, south and the east and west gates along with some of the smaller gates. You can see some of the barracks, the headquarters building and the commanding officers building and also the bathhouse outside of the fort. So there's quite a lot of parts of the fort visible but also quite a lot still under the
0: percentage-wise, would you be able to say how much is visible and how much isn't?
1: Maybe 20% of the internal buildings have been exposed for visitors to see, so lots of space for your imagination to run wild and think about all the the buildings and how busy that fort would have been, as opposed to today it's a lovely tranquil setting.
0: So that's quite surprising, really, that there's actually all this other stuff which is still sort of almost lying in wait. Who do we have to thank for this work to unearth Chester's? Who did the work?
1: It was a man called John Clayton. So what you see at Chester's today really is Clayton's Chester's. He excavated all of the visible remains that you can see with his nephew finishing off some of the work after he died. He had the big manor house that you see as a visitor was his country estate. And so the Chester's fort was in his front garden. So he had it there to excavate along with all the other forts that he purchased through his life.
0: Right. When did Clayton start his archaeological work on Chester's then?
1: His first excavation was 1843. And when he died in 1890, he was still excavating. Although when we say he was excavating, he didn't do any digging. It was the local labourers who were brought in to do the work. And they were supervised by a man called William Tailford, who really would have been an expert on Chester's by the end of his life because he worked on Chester's for 50 years for Clayton. And that 50 years, they only exposed maybe 20%. So it shows how long even 19th century archaeological work takes. It's not a fast job.
0: No. You've described that he was spending most of his life doing it then. So how many years did it take for him to unearth what he did unearth?
1: He excavated between 1843 and 1890. So that's almost 50 years of excavations that Chester's, although he wasn't here, he wasn't digging every year, because Clayton also excavated at lots of other places along Hadrian's Wall. But it really was his lifelong work.
0: After his death, then, what happened to the finds that were unearthed?
1: Well, that's a really interesting story. So during Clayton's life, all the objects, such as the altars and the pottery and the jewellery and the coins that he found, were kept either in his house, the big mansion house that I mentioned, or they had a little summer house in the garden that became nicknamed the Antiquities House, and that's where all the big stone items went. And when he died, his nephew, Nathaniel George, inherited, and he built the museum that you see today, and the collection was moved into the museum. So John Clayton died in 1890, and by 1896 the museum was open for visitors, and it's been open ever since.
0: Andrew, you've been listening about how Chester's developed as as an archaeological site, how much of it has been excavated clayton did a
2: pretty good job of excavating at least one example of each of the kind of the important buildings and of course the defences what he left were lots of barracks so he excavated a couple of the barracks but once you've excavated one or two you probably don't need to do all of them so there are a few of those still to be found We probably expect to find more granaries within the fort, maybe smaller, less important ancillary buildings such as bakehouses and workshops are probably still left to be found. There may also have been a drill and exercise hall. Clayton found part of a building that might well be it, but that has yet to be confirmed. Indeed, there was an excavated one of these at Bird Oswald. But the major omission from Freyton's excavations were really the buildings around the fort. And we know that there was quite a sizeable settlement
0: outside of the fort at Chester's. So really, there's quite a lot of extra work to be done in terms of telling the full story. I mean, we have such a great site already, but uh, there's another potentially 70-80% there.
2: Well, yes, there is. But whenever you decide to do excavations, you have to make a calculation based upon what kind of return you're going to get on a considerable investment of resources, but also the fact that when you do excavations, you are also potentially destroying the opportunity for others to excavate in the future so you only do it if you feel as though there is a really pressing question that can be answered by doing archaeological investigations and Clayton's has done a pretty good job and we've already learnt so much
0: from Chester's and indeed other forts along Hadrian's Wall. Okay, let's talk about some of these key discoveries that were made at Chester's. What can you tell us about some of the um, defences and entrances?
2: Well, Clayton exposed the sort of very distinctive line of the, the plain card-shaped line of the walls at Chester's and also found out that there were six gates within the fort walls. Now, gates are not necessarily the most interesting or striking of features, but they give us great insight through their positioning and format to the purpose of the fort, and indeed the purpose of the wall. We may assume, as antiquarians and archaeologists did in the 19th and early 20th centuries, that the Romans built this continuous barrier that consisted of the curtain wall, these turrets, fortlets and forts, out of maybe an anxiety regarding what was lying to the north, a fear that they needed to protect themselves from attack. But actually, some of the crucial work done by Clayton and others showed that the purpose of, of Hadrian's War was far more nuanced than this. So what we can see at Chester's is that the fort actually straddles Hadrian's Wall. One third of the fort actually sits to the north of the line of Hadrian's Wall, sort of jutting out to the north. And three of the gateways that Clayton found actually open up to the north of Hadrian's Wall. And they're not sort of narrow, very well defended, very well protective, almost kind of defensive gates. They are big double gateways, making the fort actually quite porous. And they're reasonably modest in terms of their defensive capabilities compared to later Roman fortifications. And this suggests that while Chester's could certainly have been defended against attack, the builders seem to be far more concerned with getting in and out, maybe quickly in order to send people out on patrol, maybe trying to confront the enemy in the field to the north if there, if there was a threat to the wall or indeed, maybe using these gates as a way of facilitating access to and from the Empire. So this leads us in sort of reflecting that Hadrian's War was not necessarily this kind of defensive barrier, but maybe it was a way of mediating access to the province, maybe the forts were sort of bases for controlling and patrolling the landscape.
0: Yes, that seems to come across when you said that they sort of have access to the north side. That's um, quite interesting, I think.
2: Yes, and we shouldn't we should be under no illusions about the Romans sort of cowering behind Hadrian's Wall. We know not just from examining the wall itself but from our knowledge of Roman archaeology to the north of the wall that the Romans were quite happily operating in the landscape. So you can imagine people passing north from Chester's heading out to some of the outposts to the north of Hadrian's Wall.
0: There was also this bridge over the North Tyne as well. What's left of that today? Well, the
2: bridge, or to be precise, the bridges, because there are actually remains of two, are hugely important to our understanding of the function and form of Hadrian's Wall. We can talk of Hadrian's Wall as a defensive platform. We can talk about it as a base of operations, its role potentially in border control. But what's often overlooked is that Hadrian's Wall is also a communications network. And communicating laterally, i.e. west to east, east to west, across the frontier would have been very crucial in its operations. You have this 73-mile edifice, you have thousands of soldiers living along it, and you need to be able to move supplies, you need to be able to trade in order to keep these garrisons operating, you need to be able to send messages, you need to be able to send orders. And if there is an emergency, you need to be able to maneuver and move soldiers and equipment very quickly. And in this instance, a river is quite a considerable obstacle to doing so. So when the wall is first built, certainly at Chesters, you would have been able to cross on top of what was, was the wall. And it's also potentially a way of guarding the river for people coming up and down the river. Yes. And then, sorry, carry on.
0: I was going to say that when you watch war films or something, it's always very important to take the bridges, isn't it?
2: Indeed, and the importance of the bridge only really increases because it is replaced in probably in the AD 160s, potentially a little bit later, and enhanced in order to carry a roadway rather than just to have a pedestrian route. And at this point in the history of Hadrian's Wall, there is a military way that runs to the south in parallel with the wall, and so this second bridge allows more heavy traffic in order to progress east and west along the wall. So today what we can see is the remains of mainly of this second bridge, thanks to the movement of the river which has left it sort of marooned, we can see the base of what we call an abutment, an enormous masonry platform that would have anchored the bridge to the bank and absorbed the lateral pressure of the span of the bridge. But there's also other little bits and pieces as well. There's the basis of a watchtower, which would have protected the bridge, a short section of the curtain wall itself, and evidence that the bridge in its original form would have been sort of highly decorated. So that not only was it a very functional piece of hardware, but also it was meant to impress as well.
0: Can the casual visitor spot this bridge quite obviously? It's
2: just across the river from Chester's. You can see it from the Chester's side of the river or else you can go around and you can, you can walk right up to it. And it's pretty obvious where it is. It's a pretty strikingly large and impressive monument and it must have been a very impressive bridge in
0: its day. That's fantastic. And it's amazing what the passage of time can do to the landscape as well, leaving these things sort of on their own like an island in a field where it was once water.
1: The bridge has been marooned but other remains have been buried, and it's all to do with soil movement and change over time. It really makes you realise it was 1,600 years ago that you know, these things were last occupied. Also, Francis,
0: how far away are these bridges from the edge of the complex or, or the centre of the fort? How would you describe the distance?
1: The edge of the river, um, where you can look over the river and see the bridge abutment, it's about 75 metres out of the east gate of the fort. If you want to walk and see the bridge abutment, you have to leave the site of Chester's and walk along the modern road to get there. And that's maybe two miles in total to visit that site. But you can see it nicely from a platform on the site at Chester's just outside the East Gate.
0: We've been talking about the river, of course, and uh, perhaps it might have been somewhere where they might have bathed in the summer. But there's also a bathhouse discovered. And we all know the Romans were big bathers. So when and where was this bathhouse discovered in the fort?
1: So the bathhouse is also just outside the east gate um, of the fort on the way down to the river. And it was discovered by accident by Clayton. In the um, 1870s, they were putting drainage in. So as you leave the east gate, you'll notice you walk downhill towards the river. And the site where the fort is has real problems with water logging. And visitors will often see that today, that patches of the site can be a bit boggy and um, the Victorian excavators were wanting to clear the site. So they were putting some drains in outside of the fort, and they came across the top walls of the bathhouse and excavated down. And some of the walls are standing almost two metres high, so it was a real discovery and um, caused real excitement at the time, and even today.
0: How significant was it to have found this bathhouse then, albeit accidentally? Well, as Francis indicated, it caused quite a
2: sensation at the time, and it's quite easy to see why. Because of the way that the topography worked, the bathhouse was and still stands to to quite a great height, making it not only one of the best preserved bathhouses in Roman Britain, but one of the best preserved buildings in Roman Britain. Uh, It's a personal personal favourite of mine. So because it stands to overhead height in places, you get a real sense of the space. You get a real sense of what each of the rooms would have been like, their function, and thus the sort of whole process of roman bathing. So if we kind of begin with talking about the apodyterium, the changing hall, we can see in that space benches where the bathers would have sat. There are niches there and depending upon your interpretation they're either for putting your clothes in or for statues of the gods. And it's quite a, a spacious room where the bathers would have had room to kind of work up a bit of a sweat. Um, the Romans liked to play ball games. they loved to wrestle, they liked to lift weights or just socialise. And then so after being in that space for a little time, you, the bathers would have progressed to a small little lobby. And at this point, they would have had a choice of route through the baths. They can either go one direction and go into a very dry, hot room called a sudatorium, which is very much like a modern sauna, or go in a different direction and go through a whole series of rooms, which would have been set at different temperatures so starting with a cold room then a a warm room and then a very hot steamy room and we can see at chester's how these rooms would have worked because we can see evidence of of a roman hypercourced so that's a raised heating system that works by pumping hot air through a furnace underneath raised floors and we can see evidence of that. We can see evidence of a fountain in the hot room, and we can also see evidence of a hot bath as well. And there would have been other things going on in the bath. So the Romans were very much into, into grooming. You could have got a massage. You would have potentially had slaves to help you to cleanse your body. The Romans used to oil up using, say, special oils that they brought with them. Then they would have scraped the dirt and, and grime off with a curved metal tool called a strigil. And then once you've done all of that, you go back to the cold room for a cold plunge to cool off and to refresh the body. And to close the pause, I suppose, as well. Indeed, to close the pause, yes. <laughs> maybe maybe also for a splash about in the river if, if they fancied it.
0: Well, yes, of course. So that's an amazing amount of sophistication there in that bathhouse, so I can understand how significant that was to have discovered as well. Let's move on to the Principia. What was that, for people who don't know, and who occupied it, Andrew? Well, the Fort Principia
2: stood at the very centre of the fort, at the intersection of its two major roads. It's the most important building in the fort. Its basic function is as the command and administrative centre, but it's also a religious centre as well. It's really the kind of the heart of the garrison. And its format is, is very important. Each regiment thought of their forts as essentially a town in themselves, like any other Roman town. And since all Roman towns have a forum, the Principia essentially serves that function for the soldiers. It's divided into three sections which can be very clearly seen on site today. The first of these is an open space like that you'd expect to find in a Roman Forum. It's a, essentially a courtyard where people could maybe mingle, maybe there were notices for the soldiers to read, and a well for, to provide water for conducting religious ceremonies. Beyond that there is an even more important space And today you can see the base of very large piers that would have held up the roof of what once would have been a large basilica. So think in terms of format and scale, uh, sort of a parish church, the nave of a parish church. And the roof of this building would have towered over the fort and been visible for miles around. And within that, there's evidence that tells us what this would have been used for. There's the remains of a large masonry platform, known as a tribunal, from which the commanding officer of the garrison would have dispensed orders, dispensed justice, and conducted religious ceremonies on behalf of the garrison. And then at the very rear of the building, there were three rooms, two of which were probably for administration. The Roman army ran on bureaucracy and paperwork. And the third was the most sacred and revered space in the fort. This was the shrine or the ides the as, as the Romans called it. And here in the ides under close guard, were the standards of the unit. These were carried by the soldiers in battle and were venerated as sacred objects. Losing them in battle meant disgrace for the garrison.
0: You've described another very sophisticated building, obviously based on lots of other evidence that we know about and the Roman culture really coming to life here and, and, and some colour really coming through those sort of stone walls as we would see them today lying quite flat into the landscape. Francis, you know a bit more about how and when the Principia was discovered. Tell us a bit about that.
1: Yeah, that's right. So we know in particular about the discovery of the strong room. So that's the underground room below the Ides that Andrew was just describing where the standards were kept. And in that strong room was kept the pay and potentially you know, important documents and things. And it was doubly protected because it was in the centre of the fort and it was guarded by the guards who were guarding the standards. But it was also underneath the Ides, so it was had some sort of religious protection. But in 1801, so before... John Clayton was excavating. It was his father who owned the site at the time. Workmen discovered the strong room and the wooden door, which they say was oak, was still intact at the time. Wow. And they opened the door and were very excited because there'd been rumours about possible treasure underground at Chester's. And they were extremely disappointed to find only a few silver coins in there. And we have a letter from one of John Clayton's sisters, Bridget, to their maternal grandmother, describing the excitement it was found and someone was sent up to the house and everyone ran down in snow to see this um, discovery. But unfortunately, (laughs) there was no um, treasure chest in there and um, the wooden door disintegrated fairly soon after exposure to the air, which, you know, we would, would expect. However, we do have still, and visitors can go into, the only intact strong room that you can go in and you're standing within a complete Roman structure with the roof above your head. It's really quite impressive, that preservation.
0: Right. So when they discovered this Principia in 1801, with the door more or less intact, albeit for a short time, would they have been quite far underground where they dug?
1: Yes. The start of the steps down into the strong room are at what is our ground level now. But that's maybe 50 to 70 centimetres below what was the ground level in the 19th century. And then you go down the steps and the room is about from the floor to the arched roof. It's about two metres. Mm. So to get down the steps. So they've dug a fair way.
0: Right. That is fascinating. Yeah. H- how does this Principia compare with the other ones along Hadrian's Wall?
1: Well, it's one of the larger ones compared to some of the other forts along the wall. The reason for that, I think, um, Andrew's going to explain later.
0: Now, as um, Francis has sort of intimated, Chester's didn't just house Roman soldiers. It was a cavalry base as well. When did we find that out, Andrew? And why was it important to have cavalry at Chester's? It's because of what we talked about at the very
2: beginning, because of the particular characteristics of the landscape. You have low-lying, very easily accessible landscape, you have the river, which is a strategic priority, and you have the bridge, which needs to be protected, and the cavalry would be perfect for operating here. They would be able to move quickly patrol long distances and respond quickly and efficiently to any threats. The reason why we know that there were cavalry here is because of the inscriptions so the carving into stones that Clayton and others found at the site so the Romans love to put their names on things they put their names on their buildings they put their names on religious altars they put their names on statues and these inscriptions give us a lot of information about who created buildings who lived in the buildings when we don't happen to have a lot of the day-to-day records that haven't survived because they were written on perishable materials So there are a couple of particular inscriptions that we have that record the names of units stationed at Chester's. We have one that records a unit called the Alla Augusta Ob Virtutum Appellate, and we have another which records the unit known as the Alla Secunda Asturum. Now, the term Alla, which is A-L-A, means wing in Latin, Mm -hmm. and this is what the Romans used to describe a cavalry unit. And so we know that for most of its lifespan, certainly at the very beginning of Chester's and in the final two centuries, Chester's was a cavalry garrison. How many cavalrymen would we have had stationed there? Horsemen? Well, the capacity was roughly 500 troopers. This was a sort of standard size of a cavalry cohort, but it's only actually comparatively recently that archaeologists have determined where they kept the horses. So, as we've already heard, Clayton found lots of barracks, as have been found in in forts uh, across the Roman world, but no stables. And the riddle of where they kept the horses was only finally solved quite recently by modern archaeologists. So excavations at cavalry barracks in Wall's End and South Shields in the late 90s showed that the barracks there, which are roughly kind of about 10 metres by about 5 metres, were split into two. And it was previously thought the soldiers were in the back and the equipment was in the front. But they actually discovered that the front compartment contained long pits covered by stones and that there were very high levels of the chemical phosphate i.e what you might expect from horse urine so Ah. what this essentially is is a drain for the waste from the horses and so essentially what's going on in that these comparatively small spaces you have men living in the back compartment and you have horses living in the front compartment and although we haven't confirmed the findings at chester's we would expect to find the same thing if chester's was reactivated
0: Right, so that is still sort of to be properly determined, I suppose. I don't know whether you could answer this or not, but if we've got 500 men, how many horses would there be? Good question. I think at least 500. <laughs> right. But I guess it depends on whether they had potentially had spares. Well, I was thinking that perhaps they might sort of have fewer horses and more men sort of rotating shifts. Do you have a thought on that, Francis?
1: Yeah, so from what we understand... Each cavalryman would have his own horse and it would be his responsibility, which is perhaps one of the reasons why they would have them, you know, so close. But we think that some of the officers might have had two or even three horses. So actually, there could have been potentially more than 500 But they would have also had to have had a good supply for any replacements but no as a cavalryman you would have your own horse because you are always mounted so it's different to say some of the officers in infantry units might have horses for occasional use or for scouting duties but no each cavalryman would have his own horse
0: that's fascinating so tell me a bit more about this cavalryman job was it a high status thing?
1: If you were a cavalryman, you were higher status than an infantryman in the Roman army, you were paid more. However, these cavalrymen were auxiliary soldiers, so not legionary soldiers. So they're already one level down from the legionaries who are the citizen soldiers. But no, being a cavalryman was a step up from infantry and they were seen as having more training. So yeah, it's all, all the hierarchy in the army, isn't it?
0: Let's talk about that aspect of the Roman citizen versus the cavalrymen and where they would have come from. Andrew, you know a bit more about this. Can you tell us a bit more about where a cavalryman would come from in the Empire?
2: Well, the stereotype is that a Roman soldier was from Italy. But by the time of the construction operation of the wall, this hasn't been the case for centuries. The Roman army has long recruited from across the Roman Empire, to put it bluntly, often recruiting from peoples that it has conquered. And it was very good at incorporating the... The special skills that it didn't necessarily already have within the empire, and horsemanship was one of these. So the regiment that had the longest stay at Chester's and would have occupied most of the buildings that you see on site today was the 2nd Asturian Cavalry Regiment. So these would have been raised initially in northern Spain. There is still a region in northern Spain today called Asturias, which is centred on the city of Oviedo. And these were stationed at Chester's from around AD 180 until the end of Roman Britain. So they are auxiliaries. They are non-Roman citizens. They're very much like other units based along Hadrian's Wall, in that they are drawn from the far-flung parts of the Empire. We have other units from, from North Africa, Romania, Syria, Gaul, Belgium, Germany, etc. And the auxilia were a way of effectively upping the manpower of the army and also bringing in specialist skills. And in this case, their horsemanship is being put to good use in patrolling the river valley and protecting the river and its
0: bridge. Do we know why the Asturians, the Spaniards, were particularly good on horseback versus a typical Roman? Is there any evidence of that at all?
1: I don't know if we know particularly, but often, you know, the skills that Rupert people have will depend on the lifestyle and the landscape they're living in. So, cavalry skills were just not something that the Romans or the Italian Romans were ever particularly famed for. It just wasn't part of their traditional skills. They were definitely an infantry army, you know, on big scale battles. So perhaps historians, cavalry and riding is just a bigger part of their life.
0: What else about their culture did they bring to Chester's Roman fort, Francis?
1: Well, so cavalrymen they're paid a little bit more than infantrymen, but also they've got more opportunity to express themselves. So soldiers, infantry soldiers would be able to have their own fittings on belts and maybe different brooches or strap ends that could express some of their personal tastes and identities. But the cavalryman has got the horse harness as well as his own belts and fittings to decorate. So Although we can't identify, you know, Asturian or Spanish culture, we can see lots of cavalry decorations and harness decorations that the soldiers chose to put onto their harness to make themselves look a bit more impressive and give them some individual style.
0: Okay, what are the sort of finds that describe what you're telling us there about these harnesses? How how do we know that they exist?
1: So we've got um, one of my favourite objects is a large copper alloy mount with enamel decoration that we call Milfiore, which is thousand flowers and it's so it's glass rods put together into a pattern and then stretch and stretch and stretch until it's tiny and chopped into pieces and then set into in this case a large circular mount that would have gone on to harness but we also have lovely belt fittings so we've got one that's open work with silver that's part of a motif it says the half we have is Uter, V-T-E-R, and it's part of a pair that would have said Uter Felix, use happily. So we've got some beautiful pieces of kind of decorative metalwork, you know, that they spent their money on.
0: But the leather doesn't survive, I presume.
1: So not at Chester's. We do have occasionally have leather surviving, but not much. We think if we could go into some of the deeper levels where there's waterlogging... As we know, there is waterlogging from both the 19th and the early 20th century excavation reports, and the fact they were building that drain, which is how they discovered the bathhouse, then maybe we might have had leather surviving. In Egypt, when the conditions are very dry, you might get leather surviving, or a Vindelander, which is a fort just along, along the road, a little bit further along Hadrian's Wall, when they do get leather surviving, and they've had some finds with beads and studs on the harness that we can see. Equally in um, Germany, a site called Kalkrisa, which is a Battlefield site. They've had leather fittings surviving with some of the metalwork on, so it's from little fragments of and pictures from the past that we can see where these fittings would have gone.
0: And you described Vindolanda there as uh, one of the places. And of course, they survive as tablets in the form of letters, um, which uh, Andrew and I have covered in a previous episode, which which yes. is also really fascinating about Roman life and how they communicated with each other. You've mentioned your favourites there, the, these harnesses, Francis. Andrew, do you have any yeah. um, favourite finds? I really like, for example, the religious stone that we
2: have, the statues, there's altars, or fragments of of statues and altars and things. And I like the fact that there's such a wide range of different gods from across the Roman pantheon represented. So we have traditional Roman gods such as Jupiter and Juno, and then gods that were assimilated from other cultures and brought over by the soldiers, such as the Persian god Mithras. And then there are gods that were either possibly indigenous or at least preferred and thrived in the area, such as the water goddess Coventina. And I really like the way that the Romans kind of incorporate all of these different gods within their belief system. It really shows that the community was a melting pot and that Hadrian's Wall was quite a culturally dynamic place.
0: Yes, and we talked about that on our previous episode together as well. So where can we see John Clayton's collections today?
1: Well, we have still the museum that opened in 1896, that John Clayton's nephew opened, and visitors can come and see not just the material from Chester's, but the Clayton Collection. So we the museum is called the Clayton Museum because John Clayton didn't just own Chester's. By the time he died in 1890, he owned five forts and about 20 miles of Hadrian's Wall, a real huge swathe. And there was excavations at lots of his sites. And so you'll find Andrew mentioned Mithras. So we have some material from Housesteads, from the Mithraic Temple there. Coventina's Well, which is a temple or a votive well from outside Carabruff Fort that you can go and visit and you can see the Mithraic temple there also. So material from all of his sites in a really atmospheric museum, I think. It's still got a very Victorian feel, although we've updated the interpretation and we've updated the cases so that they, the objects are a little bit happier in there, they're not deteriorating. And so you can see really and learn a bit about you know Clayton and his story and his excavations across that 50-year period.
0: Okay, so new signs and all that sort of thing, which is always helpful for the modern visitor. What sets Chester's apart then finally from the other Roman forts of Hadrian's Wall?
1: Oh, it's tricky, isn't it? Chester's is very close to my heart. I would say if I had to pick one thing, it would be the bathhouse. Because where else on the wall can you go and stand and have walls that are high on your head and see all the different features of the hot and the cold baths that are basically like our spas today?
0: What about you, Andrew? What makes Chester's Roman Fort different for you? Well, I think it's that dual inheritance, the kind of the
2: antiquarian aspect, that Victorian story, the story of of John Clayton on, on the one hand, gives it this kind of quite quirky charm, you've got the museum itself, you've got the backdrop of Chester's house, you've got that really beautiful bucolic setting. And then that's juxtaposed with the sense that this was a place where real people lived 1800 years ago. And if I can just copy Francis, because the bathhouse is also my favourite, my favourite place in the wall is walking down to the bathhouse on a summer's day, looking at the river and, and feeling like I'm a, I'm a Roman cavalryman, looking forward to enjoying a touch of luxury and relaxation in such a, a beautiful spot.
0: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, as we creep towards Halloween, we're back to investigate witchcraft And witch marks?
1: The circular ones are the maze-like ones. The ones that are basically like a very neat circle that you draw with a compass. But then with a lot of sort of spirography curves in them like flower are the maze ones that are meant to trap the entity.
0: Thanks for listening. See you next time.